Why don't you take a chance to open your Bibles back up to John chapter 3. We'll be looking at that quite regularly here. But as you turn there, uh, I'd like to ask you to ponder a question. And that question is, would you like to experience greater joy in your life? Would you like to experience greater joy in your life? Now, you're probably thinking at this point, Jay, what kind of a ridiculous question is that? Of course, I'd like to have more joy in my life. Who in their right mind is going to say, you know what, I think I have enough. So a hard pass for me, no thank you, no joy, please go away. Now, uh, that is the interesting thing about joy, isn't it? If you sense you lack joy, you deeply desire it. And even if you do feel like you have joy, you still deeply desire more joy. So it's not only those of us who came here this morning feeling anxious or sad or just plain frustrated and joyless about life that are yearning for more joy in our lives, but also those of us who are feeling joyful. You know, even the ones that are... are you know, annoyingly happy. They're happy to say yes to more joy. Put another way, it seems like all of us are quietly desperate for more joy. How desperate? I'd say as desperate as we all are for our very next breath of air. It's as if uh, we've all been made for this thing called joy just to Uh, And to actually experience it, not in scarcity, but to experience it without measure. That said, how can we become more joyful? Well, I think one of the most obvious ways and best ways to, to becoming more joyful is to go out there and find some people that are, in fact, maybe more joyful than you are and humbly sit before them and learn from them. And in today's passage, we actually encounter an unexpected teacher of joy. How many of you thought about John the Baptist, who's most famous for, you know, announcing the ministry of Jesus and thought him to be a master of joy? Well, I actually want to point us to the claim that John the Baptist makes in this passage about his joy. Uh, Look with me at uh, chapter 3, verse 29. That very last sentence, beginning with the word, therefore where he says, John the Baptist declares, Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And that word that's translated there as complete can also mean being full or fulfilled. So John the Baptist actually has the the audacity to claim that he has joy to the full. And today, we're actually going to unpack what he has to teach us about joy. But first, uh, here's a preview of how we're going to move forward. First, we're going to start by looking at the problem of how joy is lost. And then naturally, we're going to look at the, the, the solution or the answer to how joy is found. And then we're going to examine how to keep this joy. Not just for this week, not just for this year, but for all eternity. All right, so again, our three points today are going to be how joy is lost, how joy is found, 
and joy for all eternity. Okay, so our passage opens today with a scene where joy is effectively lost. All right, and how is it lost? Well, it's lost to, I think, one of the most common thieves or enemies to our joy, both individually and corporately. And that's something. That enemy is none other than jealousy. Jealousy. Because have you noticed how the moment jealousy rears its ugly head in your heart, it has a powerful way of instantly replacing or displacing any sense of gladness, contentment, or joy that you might have had there before? Jealousy is actually quite serious because jealousy, at least the self-seeking kind, is literally toxic or deadly to joy. And when we come to this passage, we're going to see all the necessary ingredients for basically a turf war, a jealous rivalry of sorts. Look again at uh, chapter 3, verse 22 with me, where we see a potential rivalry developing between Jesus and John the Baptist. Verse 22, after this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John was also baptizing at Anon near Salim because water was plentiful there and people were coming and being baptized for John had not yet been put in prison. Now discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. So immediately we're told that Jesus and his disciples uh, have shown up and, and they've started to do ministry in the same kind of rural countryside neighborhood as John the Baptist and his disciples and yeah, you know, let's not forget John actually did have disciples, meaning he had these student apprentices that, that considered John to be their rabbi, which means ra a teacher or master. And interestingly enough, in this gospel, there are only two people that are referred to by that title. One, John the Baptist, and two, Jesus. Hmm. Now, uh, both happen to be you know, John and Jesus in this very rural town called Anon because water happened to be plentiful there. And this was quite unusual in the dry region of Judea. And people were coming in from all over the land. They're streaming in to be baptized by John the Baptist. But all of a sudden, the people are also now going to Jesus. Jesus to be baptized. And John's disciples, they get a little uncomfortable. They seem dismayed by this. And they, and they come and report this news to, to John in verse 26, verse 26. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. Now, some commentators uh, try to, to argue that John's disciples are speaking out of happiness here. You know, they're just so glad Oh, look, Master John, all that you have faithfully predicted about Jesus is coming true. Uh, sadly, I don't find that very convincing because that explanation makes little to no sense of how John is about to respond to them. Because if you look at what John actually has to say, or what John's disciples actually have to say to John, you're going to see some classic giveaways that what they're feeling isn't necessarily joy, but maybe something more like envy rivalry, conceit. And that first giveaway to notice is in verse 26 and uh, how John's disciples fa falsely exaggerate 
what's actually going on. And when they're making the claim, and all are going to him, and all are going to Jesus, which we already know isn't true. Because earlier in verse 23, we've been told that the crowds were still coming to John the Baptist as well. So, not only do they falsely exaggerate, uh, John's disciples also leave out some important details when they tell John, look, he, that is Jesus, is baptizing. Uh, the author of this gospel actually goes out of his way to correct this a few verses later. Look down at ch uh, chapter 4, verse 2, writing, where he writes, Jesus himself did not baptize anyone, but only his disciples. Now, this was an important fact to get right, which is why the author sets the record straight. So add it all up. You've got misleading omissions, false exaggeration, and now you're getting a sense of where the hearts of these disciples might be at. Because where are we in our hearts when we start to distort reality this way for ourselves and others? You know, indulging in catastrophic outlooks on things, making untrue comparisons about what other people have and what we don't have. All those things are a surefire indicator that we're in the clutches of jealousy and that envy has come in and joy has been kicked out. Which leads me to ask all of us, how seriously or not seriously do you take jealousy, envy, etc., in your own life? Teenagers, when you're scrolling social media, are you aware of that little green monster <laughs> that is rearing its head in your heart? How about adults when you're scrolling social media? Do you realize in that moment you're losing joy? You're forsaking joy? Now here's the thing about jealousy. I think the mistake that I often feel like I make with it is, is not taking it lightly or, or not taking it um, too seriously. But the mistake that I make with it is that I take it way too lightly. So jealousy, envy, uh, why, do we, why do we tend to take these things so lightly? I think part of it has to do with the fact that we breathe and swim in a culture where jealousy is just so commonly accepted as part of the norm, as part of how we do things and how we go about getting motivated for things. Uh, it, it affects and it's just so accepted in every sphere of our lives almost. For instance, it drives our business practices and workplace cultures, our governments, our political institutions, education, the academy, arts, sports, entertainment, you name it. And we mustn't forget how commonly accepted envy, jealousy, rivalry are in the church. Tragically, almost just as commonly and benignly as I think anywhere else. But here's what we need to know and take stock of is that the scriptures take jealousy and envy as if it were deadly serious. I invite you to go home and do a quick word search on words like jealousy, envy, covetousness uh, in, your, in your Bibles. And uh, what, what, what you'll see is just kind of a too long to read list 
of, of um, basically verses that mention jealousy, envy, rivalry in the lists of basically the worst sins and vices of mankind. Yes, right alongside the usual suspects of idolatry, sexual immorality, drunkenness, murder, greed. Jealousy, envy, and covetousness always show up. Now, I realize that the word uh, covetousness or coveting, it's not a common word nowadays. So let me share a common dictionary definition of the word. Covetousness. A strong wish or desire to have something, especially something that belongs to someone else. So you know why the Bible takes the sin of covetousness so seriously? Well, when does the sin of covetousness first show up in the Bible? Who was it that was jealous or strongly desired something that which did not belong to them? Who was it that believed the original lie that they were missing out on something good and that God himself was the one holding that good thing back from them? And who then, being deceived, acted out the original sin, which is still being acted out, trying to steal God's very rule for themselves? Of course, I'm talking about the original coveters, our true bona fide parents, Adam and Eve, who tragically were also the first ones to forsake and to lose joy. Because ever since, we've struggled with the same covetous, joyless hearts as they birthed uh, what D.A. Carson refers to as the uh, perennial human sin, which is the arrogance that wants to be God and stand where God stands. Now, returning to today's passage, uh, we're going to explore the question of what might have caused John's disciples to lose their joy. Uh, This is a little bit of a simplification, but I'd say the answer could be summed up in one word, which is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. John's disciples, beset with weakness, had simply forgotten some foundational truths that they had already heard from John, their rabbi. Oh, things that they have, have already learned many times over, probably. Uh, maybe you can relate to this. I definitely feel like I can. But thankfully, John the Baptist, like every good teacher does, uh, he's there to repeat and remind these disciples of his, of these key truths. And in doing so, he's going to help them and us to rediscover joy. Now, this leads us to our second point today, which is joy found or how to find joy. So here are John's disciples. They're fretting about these shrinking crowds or Jesus making more disciples than them. And the very first thing that John wants to remind them here, the most critical foundational um, truth to build everything else upon is the truth of God's grace. Grace must be the foundation. Heavenly grace. Look with me at verse 27 where John reminds his, his disciples of this. Verse 27. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, 
but I have been sent before him. So first and foremost, what John wants us to get our bearings upon is a simple fact. This law of reality for every single person, everyone here, we are utterly dependent and entirely subject to the unmerited kindness, unearned favor of God. God's grace is everything for us. Thus, what John asserts here is that there isn't a single good thing that any of us ever have ever had or will have that we didn't receive entirely and unequivocally as a gift. Oh, you, you hear that and you're like, what do you mean? I work so hard for my money. Well, you're able to work hard because you've been given the ability to do that work. All is gift and it comes from heaven, which is another way of saying God himself is that great giver. And you can start to put together how this effectively cuts out uh, the legs from underneath all envy, covetousness, jealousy, as well as boasting. Because if the true story of reality is that apart from God, we have nothing, not even life, not breath, not anything, uh, the Apostle Paul asks the, the Corinthians, who are also kind of struggling with uh, covetousness and conceit, he asks them, what do you have that you have not received? This is so important to remember when you get frustrated with other people who just don't seem to get it as well as you do. What do you have that you have not received? That you would be smug, that you would be self-righteous, that you would look down on anyone. Now we know that the answer is we'd have nothing apart from his grace. The answer is we can't boast about anything other than the fact that we're wholly dependent upon the Lord and that he is the sovereign giver of all life, that he is the source of life, breath, and everything. And we must give him thanks and praise. And you know what? This actually frees us to experience joy in a crucial way. Because once we understand that everything is gift, uh, we also receive these gifts, I would say, in the way that they're meant to be received, which is with humility. Humility. Uh, consider John the Baptist, for instance, who is quick to remind his disciples, hey, I am not the Christ. I'm just the messenger sent before him. And the implications of this are basically, I can't save you. Don't look to me to save you. And don't look to yourself to save you. You can't save yourself either because you are not the Christ. But what I have been gifted, what I have been called to do, you know, and he's reminding his, his disciples of this, I've been given the charge to point to the Christ the one who can save. Now, this is, remember, uh, this is actually coming from someone who could have easily become quite conceited, someone who might have been regularly tempted to see himself at the center of the universe, because uh, being John the Baptist was kind of a big deal, right? You know, you know parts of his story. Not only did he have this miraculous birth story, he had flocks of people now coming to him, begging him to disciple them, 
crowds that hung on his every word, and friends and, and, and even enemies asking him all the time, hey, are, are you the Christ? Because uh, we're kind of wondering if you might be. How in the world did John the Baptist not lose the plot? How did he stay grounded? How did he keep from becoming conceited when all this was happening to him? I'm fairly certain that I would have gone off the deep end if I was getting this kind of attention. Maybe you can relate. Well, what John had ultimately was the truth, the truth about who Jesus was. And therefore, he had actually a better, truer story about reality, where he felt no need to be at the center of the universe because he experienced profound joy on account of the actual center of the universe. Therefore, John could sincerely say, I must decrease, and he must increase. And this leads us to the next way that John actually helps us find true joy. John gives us this parable, which helps us understand, once again, and frame ultimate reality, the place where his own joy has been made complete. And this parable is a simple one, painfully simple. It's about a wedding. And what struck me as just wild there is, you know, and I've skated past this so many times, um, it means that the great story of reality is actually a love story. One that we're all invited to play a joyful part in. Look again with me at verse 29. Verse 29. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And here John simply explains to his disciples that Jesus is the bridegroom, which means that uh, John is the friend of the bridegroom. Now, this, this term, friend of the bridegroom, was a lot like what we'd call the best man today. Likewise, uh, uh, the, the friend of the bridegroom, his job was to support the groom in various ways and thus honor the married couple. So the way that a, a friend of the groom would, would receive honor and joy into his role or from his role, it was to seek the honor and glory of the groom. That's why he was there. Put another way, um, as he decreased and as the groom increased, counterintuitively, his honor increased as well. His joy increased as well. And it's really quite fitting that John would be talking about a wedding here because the Old Testament often speaks of Israel, the people of God as the bride of the Lord. Uh, the, that whole theme runs through Isaiah uh, 62, which was our, our first reading. And the New Testament basically takes up and continues that theme, picturing its fulfillment in Christ as the bridegroom and the church as the bride. In fact, uh, have you noticed how the Bible basically opens with the wedding and closes with the wedding? Genesis, Revelation. And basically, when Christ shows up on the scene, what Christians become are the ones 
invited to the wedding, inviting others to the wedding, and then the unbelievable fulfillment where we are collectively the bride, the one being married by God himself. You know, we've already preached about a wedding, right? Remember a couple weeks back? What was Jesus' very first sign in this gospel? Well, it took place at a wedding. And uh, it was also uh, where he took the um, jars of purification, filled them with water, and then transformed them for joy, for celebration, into Wine, which could have been uh, enjoyed by all there without measure. An obscene amount of wine. And next week, Jesus, the bridegroom, is going to go on a little trip to a well. And he's going to reenact uh, uh, many of the same movements or details when Isaac and Jacob also went to a well which is where they met their brides. But the woman that Jesus meets is, gasp, right? Uh, A five-time divorcee, a dirty heretic from Samaria. Wow. Now, here's here's the extraordinary thing about all these pictures about Jesus, the bridegroom. Remember how John first started by reminding us a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You might get the idea that that, that God is is chintzy or he's, you know, he's cheap, he's not generous. But actually, do you know what this gospel is revealing to us about what it is that God is freely offering to give to his people? We are reminded of this this in in John chapter 3, verse 16. Look back at it with me where we're told... For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. And this is what I meant by the fact that the greatest story of reality is actually a love story. For God so loved the corrupt, hostile, sinful world that he gave his only son to be its bridegroom. Not to condemn it, but to save it, to redeem it, so that the world could be transformed into his bride, the church, united to God in Christ for all eternity in perfect, holy love And you know what else God has given out of his love? Look with me again at chapter 3, verse 35. Verse 35. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. So out of the Father's love, he's given all things to the Son, which is to say he's given possession and authority and rule over everything to Jesus, the Son, the Bridegroom. Which means that now... If you live under his rule, if you confess him as Lord, 
as you live under his authority, what you're actually coming to experience is life in God's love. Now back to our passage. Uh, Did you notice what John mentioned specifically? The thing that specifically completed his joy? Verse, Verse 29. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. It was hearing the bridegroom's voice that completed or filled up John's joy. Because as, as it turns out, it was only uh, uh, as we receive or believe the testimony of the Lord Jesus himself that we come to know true joy in any sense of the word. So let's actually read from verse 31 where we're told why Jesus' words are worth paying attention to and why they're quite unlike anyone else's words. Verse 31. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth belongs to the earth and speaks in an earthly way. He who comes from heaven is above all. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. This section starts by reminding us of something we all, I think, know is true. Or we get over this delusion fairly quickly in life. That our words, because they're earthly, they're limited. Because we're finite creatures with only a partial understanding of everything, our earthly words are imperfect. They're inadequate. And to make matters worse, our words can often be profoundly corrupted because we're all incredibly proficient at deceiving ourselves and deceiving others through our earthly words. But this is not so for the one who comes from above, because he is above all. John repeats this. He says it twice for emphasis. And this one, the above all one, his testimony, the testimony of the bridegroom, the lamb, The words of Jesus, they're not earthly. They're not corrupted. They're not imperfect. They're not inadequate. His words convey true sight, true hearing. Because according to verse 34, for he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the spirit without measure. Now this verse reveals that when Jesus speaks, here's what he's actually speaking the very words of God. Not just words about God, not just opinions about him or what he thinks, but Jesus utters the very words of God. And now we're going to tread into something that's a bit more mysterious because here's what is carried along or actually makes the word of God audible to us. It's the spirit of God. The spirit of God. Um, when the spirit is spoken of in, in the Bible, the Greek and Hebrew words are actually often simply breath. Breath. So I've heard it put this way. You can separate spirit from the word of God as much as you can separate breath from speech. But here's, here's the most shocking thing about all this. God is speaking these eternal words, but we are not listening. 
we don't listen to what um, this heavenly one has to bear witness to. Verse 32 again. He bears witness to what he has seen and heard, yet no one receives his testimony. Jesus last week said the same thing to Nicodemus, actually, who, as the teacher of Israel, should have been able to receive and hear God's words. John 3.11, Jesus says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you, that is plural, you all do not receive our testimony. I find this to be a very sobering warning and reminder to us all that would call ourselves Christians or even consider ourselves at least fond of Jesus because it's not just hardened atheists, right, that, that uh, don't receive or reject Jesus' testimony. This is pretty comprehensive here. If you doubt it, for instance, uh, let's consider uh, how you sometimes squirm inside when you come across certain commands of Jesus about how we must live. You know, when he starts talking about where to spend our time, where to spend our money, or how about when Jesus testifies very clearly about who we can and cannot sleep with, or the enemies we must love and forgive, or the self that we must die to and deny. Uh, The reality is, I think most of us, myself very much included, can take quite a dangerously dismissive, a la carte approach to the words, the very testimony of Jesus. And it's often in a quest to increase ourselves because that's what society tells us is ultimately the pathway to joy. If you want to increase joy, increase yourself. And we find this attractive because no one receives his testimony. No, not one. So what hope is left for us? What hope is there for any of us in any of this? Because left to our own devices, obviously we all fail miserably. And we can't do this in our own very impoverished strength. Well, here's some good news. God is not expecting us to do this from our poverty. He knows full well what we all lack. He also knows full well that he created us to be completely dependent upon his grace for life, breath, and everything. So what is it that God in Christ is offering to us so that we may live? It's none other than his very own word applied to us by his very own spirit. Look again with me at verse 33. Verse 33. Whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. You see, uh, back back then, right, in, in these biblical times, the rich and powerful, when they would have to commit themselves to an agreement or uh, certify like a binding legal document, like a, a, a loan sheet or something like that, what they would do is they'd take these ornate seals that made an, uh, a unique identifying marker, right, and they press them into wax or something similar to tie that agreement back to them. You know, it's like a signature nowadays, 
So what John is saying is that eternal life begins with setting your seal or binding yourself exclusively to Jesus and his heavenly testimony. And in fact, this is the, the very act of binding yourself to Jesus, surrendering yourself to him exclusively, accepting his testimony as the very true words of God, and thus forsaking other earthly testimonies. This is actually sounding a quite, quite, quite a lot like marriage, isn't it? Because when we agree to marry someone or set our seal upon them, our spouse, what we're committing to is a unique, exclusive devotion, aren't we? Forsaking all others, which creates this holy union between one man and one woman for life. One of the most beautiful things about uh, Isaiah 62 is that there are a couple of verses in there about how God first rejoices over us. He's the one that begins with joy, moves toward us with joy. And you know who has already set his seal upon you, Christian? Who is God the Father given and sent into the world to take the church, his bride, to be his one and only? Who was the very word of God who took on flesh so that he could give his very life, his body, to save her, to cleanse her, to redeem her, so that she may live in joy and be one with him, not just in flesh, but by his very spirit for all eternity. Because here's what actually takes place when we confess that Jesus, your testimony is true. I believe. Verse 36, verse 36. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. You believe, and then you have eternal life. I think we often hear the term eternal life, and we think, oh, it's something that comes after I die. No, it's actually something that's given to you now that carries into eternity, overcomes death. And it's a profound source of joy. Now, unfortunately, there are also consequences for rejecting Jesus' testimony. Look at the second half of verse 36. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. This means that if we decide to refuse to recognize Jesus as the rightful owner and possessor and ruler over all things, basically deciding I'm going to go it alone and I'm going to be a God unto myself, which in every instance always ends with wreaking all manner of relational havoc, misery, and evil in the world, there will be perfect justice for you in the end. And God's wrath will humble the proud. But in speaking to his disciples later in the gospel, here's what Jesus actually tells his disciples is, is the reason why he's ultimately speaking to them all these words, all his words to them. Even, even these hard-to-hear ones, like God's wrath being upon you. Please listen as I read from uh, John chapter 15, verse 11, where Jesus says, These things I've spoken to you, 
that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Jesus says this shortly talking about his crucifixion, his resurrection, and last but not least, the helper that he's going to send his disciples shortly thereafter, the helper, the Holy Spirit, that he desires to give to his disciples without measure. So, again, would you like to experience greater joy in your life? Then you got to remember, it's all a gift of God's grace. And by his grace, may you set your seal upon Jesus' testimony as true. And then prepare to grow as you come to new life by hearing his spirit and voice in your innermost being. And may his word dwell richly in you so that his joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Will you please pray with me as we close? Father, we praise you for sending to us our complete and full joy. Help us to believe. Help us to surrender to him so that we may truly live. We confess, Lord, that our covetous hearts are so often joyless, obsessed with self-seeking, lost in the words of this earthly world, looking to earthly things when your heavenly word and spirit is what we need without measure. We pray that you'd open our ears to hear and our hearts to believe so that we may be one with you and know the fullness of your joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.